Hi folks, welcome to the Walwood's Nation podcast, myself, Walwood to explore Lawrence Waller. This month marks the anniversary commemorations of the commando raid on St. Nazaire on the 28th of March 1942. And as such, in season 2, episode 12, I'll be featuring an interview that I did a few years ago with veteran Ernest Booth about his wartime service and experiences. As Ernest discussed with me during this interview, his best friend from Sheffield, Jerry Taylor, who took part in Operation Chariot and was sadly destined to never return home. Ernest joined up with the Territorial Army along with his best friend Jerry just before the outbreak of war. And when hostilities broke out, Ernest was eventually posted to the 4th Battalion, Devonshire Regiment, whilst Jerry was sent to another regiment altogether. I would just like to apologise in advance for the audio quality at a few points during this episode. But anyhow, without further ado, let's dive right into our latest instalment here on the World Station podcast so you can hear about Ernest's experiences. Going back to when you left school, I think it was 1935. Yeah. Obviously, Hitler come to power by that point. Um, yeah, it did, yes. Tensions were rising. Could you... Yeah. Could you feel that, you know, things were progressing towards war during that period? I did, when I got a bit older, when I got 17, 18, I, I knew, especially when Chamberlain came back waving that piece of paper saying, peace in our time. I knew Hitler, that won't mean a thing. In any event, there was going to be a war, which was, we were very well poorly equipped for. Because when I joined up, the equipment we had was pathetic, to say the least. And it makes me wonder sometimes. But without the help of the Americans, we, we had the manpower, because we lost a, a lot of men. I mean, 500 people in Bomber Command and Fighter Command, they lost about 46,500 uh, in after D-Day, fighting in France. Uh, as I say, the unit I joined, well, what Jerry joined, that was my best friend, was called the Ninth Army Field Workshops. What? And we were appointed to the recovery section. But <laughs> there was nothing there to work with. And it was supposed to be Ninth Army Field Workshops. So there was nothing, there was nothing to work with. And when we were caught, in fact, it was my best friend who got me to join. Because 
at the time, Horbalicia was the transport minister and he changed jobs and they made him into war minister and he was the first one who brought conscription out and I forgot what date he was if you weren't in either the TA or the Auxiliary Air Force or Navy you had to serve your two years conscription didn't apply to me but my friend it did Jerry who was killed he was a year older than me so I came one day and he said guess what I've done I said what he says I've joined territorial army so I says what's I done that for so I said, because I don't want to do my two years service. Anyhow, I thought about it. And a fortnight later, I went joint same outfit. <laughs> and I went to work and said, guess what I've done? I've joined <laughs> territory. So that's where we stuck together. And... Uh, We reported for duty on 1st of September when we were, everybody were called up. <coughs> All reservists, regular reservists, everybody. So then, on the second, this unit we were with, we went to a place called Abidale Hall just on the outskirts of Sheffield. But there weren't room for us, so across the road was a sports ground belonging to one of the steelworks with a big hut. So we were in there. So we parked us in there. No beds, no blankets or anything. So for the first nine months, in my army career, I never slept in a bed. We just sat with the back to the wall. Oh, we had a great court meeting at. And that was, that was our equipment. So, from then on, it was the Forney Wall. The shooting war didn't start till May 1940. So it was, it was absolute. All the thing we did, we used to go across to Abadale Hall, do rifle drill, dig PAD trenches, and did absolutely did nothing. So one day, on battalion orders, they were asking anybody who wanted to uh, train as an armourer. So me and Jerry jumped at the chance and we put his name down. 
But in the meantime, <coughs> we had nothing for a while. And the unit was going to France. But for some reason, they said I was too young to go to France. So they sent us to Chilwell, just as nothing. At Nottingham, and it, it was an REO sea depot. And uh, of course, Jerry stayed behind, and we stayed there for two or three weeks. Then, lo and behold, we got this notice to report to Portsmouth, which was the, where the Royal Army course was. So we were there a while, <coughs> nothing happened. So then we got orders to go down there. So we went, and it was dead of night when we got there, blackout. So when we got there, we stayed for a while, and the following day, they sent us across to a school which was opposite the regular barracks. So we were stationed in this school. In the meantime, I never heard anything from Jerry. And we're walking down the corridor one day, and who should be walking up with Jerry? My friend. So of course we then we stuck it to the end of the course and we both passed with flying colours. So then every unit or regular used to have to have a, an armourer. So of course we went I was joined the fourth battalion Devil Regiment. And he was joining 1st Battalion, London Scottish. They were stationed at Hyde, and I was stationed at Paynton. So I shook hands with him, and that was Chris, uh, New uh, Easter. So I shook hands with him on station at Portsmouth. I said, we'll meet dancing after the war. So, of course, he went that way, and I went that way, and I never saw him again, <coughs> or, or never heard from him again. But then, a friend of ours who occasionally went with us heard from him. The commandos then weren't called commandos. They were independent companies. But Churchill had done time in South Africa during the South African War, where he picked that name up, Commandos. So he stated that all the independent companies should be now called Commandos. And that's how the Commandos came about. Well, apparently, Jerry had 
volunteered for these independent companies. So that left him, he was in number two commando. And apparently did one raid on Lofoten Islands. And then he, he was on the raid to Saint-Mazaire. Uh, and that's uh, where he got killed. Those are the brave men. Th those are the men I salute. Because before the raid started, they all lined up. And uh, the, the, in commanding the uh, unit said, if anybody has any doubts, because it was a point of no return, has any doubts, please step forward. And there's not one man stepped forward. So they all went. And out of all, there were 611 people. And out of those 611, three made it back to England. All the rest were either killed or captured. But unfortunately, Jerry was killed on the way out. His boat was hit by a shell. And his body was found at a later date. And it was, his body was washed ashore. And they, that's where the grave is now. Escubite Labor. It's outside a place called Labor. So that was the end of him. And that upset me for a long time. That. But as I say, in the meantime, then I joined this 4th Battalion, the Devonshire Regiment, which was a territorial battalion. And they had nothing. A couple of ring guns. A boy's anti-a boy's anti-tank rifle, which, which fired a .5 bullet. I don't think it would have made a hole in our bucket. Never mind a tank. Oh, we had a three-inch mortar. <laughs> That's a subtotal. So then, after we've been there a while. They moved all lot of us, all down to Sussex. We had no idea where we were going. And it were like King's horses and all the kings of it. They marched them up to them down again. We hadn't been there long and they marched us all back to Paynton. So no idea why, nobody knew. Anyhow, word as it we were going abroad. We had no idea. So Dame came um we went to we, we had to pack everything up and all the rifle everything. We got on the train at Paynton. We got off at Plymouth 
and nobody. Then we found out there was a, a, a liner out in the bay and it was called the Windsor Castle. And it had never carried troops before. So it never came close to the dock. We had to go out in small boats. So we boarded this Windsor Castle. We set sail. There was some Air Force men and that. And off we went. So we had no idea where we were going. Because we were on our own, no escort. Finally, four days later, looming up before us was Gibraltar. And that's the place we landed, was Gibraltar. And Gibraltar, when we got there, there was absolutely nothing there. Where the airport is now was all rough ground, and at one end was boats, which the army used as a firing range. So then, just after that, they formed an independent company. Because uh, when we arrived there, there were two regular battalions. The first battalion, the King's Liverpool Regiment, and second battalion, Somerset Light Infantry. So then, we were in an, uh, our proper army barracks then, they took us to. But then, about a month or so later, 4th Battalion, a black watch arrived, they were a territorial battalion. So they turfed us out of these barracks, and we went all in different places all around Rock. And our was headquarters then. And we finished up with book, Gavino's Asylum. That's where we were billeted. And, uh, and we stayed there. So when this independent company came on scene, There was an armourer, a regular soldier, a lovely man. So they posted to our battalion. So our dog's body. So as soon as that came up, I volunteered. So I joined this independent company. And they built a, bit, a barracks right up to the frontier with Spain. A hooted camp. And the, and that's where we were, and that's when they started uh, RE tunnelling through the rock. And our sta battle station was supposed to be 
If you've ever seen Gibraltar, the straight face of it, up there was a big hole. They, they blew out. And that were our place. And I think we were only ones who tried it out. We were there for a week, up, living in the rock. But what we could never understand is why Gibraltar was all of a thorn in Hitler's side because it commanded the Mediterranean. So they decided it must be taken at all costs. So after a while they had all these meetings with Franco why won't allow them through? By this time, they demanded 200,000 troops, Germans, two diver bombers, aircraft, and 100 guns to take Gibraltar. And these and he appointed all the generals for their different jobs. I found out only recently all that in a book I got from the library. And that the attack on Gibraltar was due to take place on the 15th of February, 1941. And that day they was going to start the attack. But these generals who'd been appointed, they kept asking Hitler why he hadn't marched or give the orders. Seeing that how many countries he just marched into without any permission. So, with that, they got fed up. So, the, it was all, the attack was called off. But even so, Gibraltar was a, a job to withstand the siege because of fresh water because the only fresh water came in the catchments on the south side of the rock which filled a reservoir inside the rock in fact all the cold water uh, the fresh water taps had all got locks on and they were open all certain times of the day. So we used to wash in seawater, which was to have a special soap that lathered in seawater. So, as I say, I joined this independent company 
So, like Jerry did, I accompanied him and whatever. Although, I, want, I did what I did when it was possible, or if it, was, if it had to be done, if I had any regret, pairs wanted doing on the guns. So I used to go with them, whatever they were doing. If they were going up the rock in battle order, running up it, I couldn't even walk up it. But as I say, I, I did enjoy that. Well, then came the day of departing. This was in May. 1943, that was the battalion I came out with as well. So naturally, they disbanded, before that, they disbanded independent company. Because with all the rocks and everything that they'd taken, they, they run a 24-hour service, dumping it in the sea. And that's how the runway started, the, where the airport is now. Because then, they'd started landing aircraft that were going to be used on Operation Torch. So when we, <coughs> we got orders, we're going home because they, uh, they demolished all that camp then where we were. So then we uh, came back to England. So I automatically thought I joined the battalion that they came out with. So we went home on the Stirling Castle. But that, they had turned that into a troop carrier. So that's the boat we came on. So we were in a big convoy. There was an American ship. I think it was the SS America, this side of us. They had, uh, it was a big convoy. They had flagships either side. And uh, a destroyer at front and back. And we all was going well until we were crossing the Bay of Biscay. And this big Fort Wolf Condor four-engine German job came to bomb this convoy. Well, first bomb landed this side of us, <laughs> and the same bomb landed close, or close to this American ship. So, all you could see was spray, but then through it comes this so they missed it. So we finally got back and we 
Dr. Albert Dock in Liverpool. And lo and behold, my name was called out. Please report to the transport office. So when I got there, you've got to report to the armourer's school, which was stationed at Merle Mowbray, to be moved there because of the bombing at Portsmouth. So, obviously, I got travel warrant and all that. And when I got there, we used to have to go to this school. Well, I'd done all this before. There was nothing they could tell me. So I applied for a transfer and lo and behold, they sent me to York. That was Big Remy Depot. So I was there for a while doing nothing in particular. And the barracks were, well, it was, there were two barracks, one still there, the cavalry barracks and infantry barracks. We were in cavalry barracks. And uh, so from there, all I did was go up to workshops. Then I was showing up, oh, this chap phoning enough, a blooming civilian. He was in charge. So he gave me the job of showing all these new recruits, everything I knew. But then I got a bit fed up with that. So, I got a job as what in peacetime used to be, a circuit armourer. So I used to go all around the different units, checking all the guns, machine guns, everything. I went to Pontefract to check their guns, and the first thing I saw, were 5.5 howitzers. All I had to do was soldiers' guns. <laughs> I don't think I know about them. And then I went to uh, a big park in Otley where there were a battalion of uh, Scots, uh, Argyll and Sutherland Island. I did all theirs. They incidentally went to D-Day. <coughs> and then I did a couple more. Then I came back and he said, I've got you a posting. I said, where am I going now? Handed me the papers I got to report to the 27th 
Emerson Training Battalion, who was stationed in Markham Park at Derby. So it was Christmas Eve when he arrived there. Obviously, I didn't know a soul. But I eventually found somebody and they took me to this hut. Sergeant Smashford right at the gateway. So until the following morning, I found out where I was and what I had to do. <coughs> and from there onwards, I had a busy time because all the 18 year olds were coming to be trained as soldiers. So I had to make sure all the guns, it was to get new guns, consignment to new rifles, which by this time the rifle had been changed. Of course, when I first got a bayonet, it was the long bayonet. But now the new rifle only carried a, a small bayonet, which you we we nicknamed them stick, biggie sticks. So I had all them to do, but uh, then I had to keep. There were A, B, C, and D companies. So I had to keep all those in touch, and also I used to they used to go live firing in a place nearby called Shorten, and they had these moving targets which kept popping up, and as soon as one popped up, you had to fire at it. So I used to go with them on that. And, uh, but, funnily enough, one of our instructors, he got killed there because he did a foolish thing. He popped up one day from behind the box. Of course, naturally, these lads were all keyed up. As soon as they saw something, they fired. I wish he got killed. So, uh, <laughs> so he wasn't safe there. <laughs> but uh, I enjoyed my time there. I, I was kept busy. And I met it up with this lad, George Pavey. He used to make all the targets, so I used to, I used to go and I used to go and help him. And uh, then I used to manage to run dances in the big hall that was there. So we used to have dances, and they used to bring them in from different places, ATS, nurses. 
So, time came when I was demobbed. Our quartermaster was my boss. He was going to be posted to Germany. And yet, he tried to get me to sign on. But that's, I'd met this young lady. So, I decided my time was up. I'd done seven years. So I thought it would time I, I had a break so I was demobbed in uh, 1946 So Ernest how did you know Jerry and what was he like? He was a, a real nice fella who come from a, a lovely he come from a lovely family And how did you get to know him? When did you first meet him? Well, the, the window firm where I worked, just above us, there was a platform, and Jerry used to operate his saw. And I worked with a chap older than me, he was. I was still learning job, and uh, so we, we all got very busy. So then Jerry came off the saws and onto the bench, and he worked with me on bench. And uh, of course I've got, I've got a bike then, and he lived. I don't suppose you know Northern General Hospital. Well, side entrance, their road went up there where Jerry lived. So, we got this house through some clearance. And, uh, January 19th, we moved in, 1935, 1939 rather. So, I lived in it. Then I got called up in, in September 39. So, me and him could then take bikes home together, we used to ride home, he used to ride home to the house and I could, he used to cut off from him and go to our house. And from there we stuck up a, we stuck up a great friendship. Well, when did you hear the news that he'd been killed in the the raid? Uh, one of the lads who lived near him on other occasions he go dancing with us and I remember he wrote he wrote me and told me but then 
ever only missing, but he've killed. Because as I say, his body was washed ashore later on, and uh, it's him who told me. It was only till after war that I got to know really how it that his body had been washed ashore and he was buried somewhere near there. So of course I wrote to War Graves Commission and they gave me all details and everything. But that was the finest commando of the war. There were five, five VCs were on that raid, four naval and only one soldier. Sergeant Durrant and his grave is practically next to Jerry's in this small cemetery. And what was Jerry like as a person? Genuine person. It was easy to get along with. We had plenty of laughs. Putting us money together, see if we could afford to go out. Ernest, can you remember where you were when the declaration of war was announced by Neville Chamberlain? Uh, never at home here. Yeah. Because, funny enough, we'd started building or digging PAD trenches down at our other factory, which we had to go and help with. Then, at the end of our street, where we lived then, in slums, there was a lane there and they wanted volunteers there to dig uh, PAD trenches. So occasionally, we, there were quite a few of us got together and we were going and uh, started digging there. But we were ill-equipped for war. During your time in Gibraltar, were you ever bombed? Yeah. We were bombed twice, Gibraltar. The first time I was bombed, we were in that army barracks, the old infantry barracks. We were there. And just next to us was a convent, and that was it. And there were some uh, inmates killed. Then the same time they were bombed. I was with this independent company right down on the frontier. Our hope was only about six foot from the gate uh, from railings which stretch from the sea one side 
right across to the sea, the other side. And they used to have one gate to let the Spanish workers in. And they had to be, be searched going in, uh, going out. But we didn't have that job. Inf but infantry regiments that they supplied. Were there air raid shelters? Yeah, but a lot of them. Like, we were in Gavino's asylum, and just down the steps from us was a big cabin, but that was full of boxes of ammunition. And if we had to go in there, then we had to just chuck a blanket down on the top of these boxes of ammunition. That sounds a bit daunting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when you joined the independent company, or the commandos as they were later called, did you take part in a Pathfinder Force mission? Yeah, we went across to uh, North Africa. But f fortunately for us, this, this is another one. The Americans have got there before us. So after that, all we did was scour the countryside round and then we're back to Gibraltar. And the ship they brought us back on was carrying German prisoners from Africa Corps. And we had the job of searching them on on the quayside for the for the got boy. But then they asked for volunteers because they were taking these prisoners to America. Anybody who wanted to stay on the ship, but we decided that we'd go back to Gibraltar, which we did. But after those bombing raids and things started to go against Hitler, Gibraltar became a humdrum life. So one day we, we met and met it over this we were a regular soldier in Devonshire Regiment and uh, he, was, he was a comic. So we met this sailor in Jib one day and he said we're going out, do you fancy a trip? They were on a, a destroyer. I ran away. So if, if I get permission from our skipper, can you get permission to go? We sought permission from uh, RCO and uh, he gave us the okay. So off we went and this, one of the worst experiences of my life, of my army days, really. They joined this convoy, and we were right at the back of the convoy, this, this way. 
then all of a sudden this big, big bloom of smoke come up in the middle of the convoy and the ship had been torpedoed. So straight away we were on, it was an old thing and all. It was built in 1918. So we sailed up through the convoy and we didn't think that we'd find anyone. The water was full of troops. So what we did, they threw scrambling nets over the side of this destroyer. And we were pulling these, trying to get pulling these soldiers out of water onto the scrambling nets. Trying to get, we managed to get some of them. But what sticks out in my mind, there was an officer and he got a rope round him. And he was swimming and they were towing about half a dozen soldiers towards the boat. I I did it, I don't know. But but he got them there. And we got him aboard we got him aboard this destroyer. So then we pulled into Algiers Harbour, which was then being bombed every day while we were there. Then we got on this this, this destroyer were going back to Gibraltar. So we went back and that's the worst experience I had. So we got back to Gibraltar and then we set our time out until it... Because as I say, then our engineers had gone right through the rock. They built no end of tunnels. So all that rough ground is just smoothed it out and they used it as an airfield. But it was a bit dangerous because if, if they put the wheels down too late, they'd shut seat into the sea on the side. So, so for 24 hours a day, all the rubble never ceased 24 hours a day. Dumping it in this. and you could see it gradually getting longer and longer. And that is now, well, it's now a proper uh, airbase now, isn't it? Her, uh, gym. Her, uh, never been by air to it, I've been on land to it. As I said, Gibraltar is a different place. When we got there, didn't know, no attack guns. All they had, as far as I know, they had three nine-inch guns right on the tip of the rock. But you know, they have them German dive bombers, and they cleared them out in no time. We we won't just have to go well. We probably got back into the rock, but fresh water that were allowed down. Now, of course, they've got a desalinization plant now. When you went to North Africa with the independent company, yeah, can you tell me about your experiences of going into the desert to the French Foreign Legion? We went. 
to the French Foreign Legion headquarters. We marched there at City of Alabas and they welcomed us with open arms. We went to their you know, if you signed up for the Foreign Legion, you signed up in France, that big port on South, then used to ship you across the uh, city of Alabas. And the things we saw there were amazing. The Legionnaires used to carry with them a 10 gallon of water on top of the pikes when they went out into the desert because then they wore them kepis that white thing that they, to keep the, keep the sun off the neck and I got friendly with one of their sergeants and he took me to their museum and some of the things that the prisoner made as a sight to behold. Things that they made by hand are unbelievable. Did you ever try the Piat? Yes. I shot that. That was a terrible gun to cock. Because you used the shoulder piece, you used to extend it on the floor, put both feet on it, and pull it up click click and springs were like that thick but once you fired a shell it reloaded itself but it was it had a long nose on it the shell instead of it exploded it used to implode shot everything everything inside the tank They were, but they were cumbersome, very cumbersome. They tr then they tried what they called a blacker bombard. This was another invention. So we tried this out at Jim on the sands. So they tried a target out to sea. And it, it was a big cumbersome thing with like handlebars on it. And when you press trigger, this this shot out. And you got nowhere near target. So this colonel who was watching demonstration, he he cast it at one side. He said. Use your rifles. So I had to fight, keep fighting at this target with his rifles. So that was the end of that. But, but having said that, we were practicing on our ground near to fence. So lo and behold, where did it go? It went over the fence into Spain. Yeah. So that that was end of that blacker bombard. What did you make of the Enfield rifle? 
I was right, rifles alright. It was very pretty serviceable really. Lots of parts wore which had to be replaced. And the sights had to be zeroed to each man. That was part of what that's my job because I carried I used to have what they call an armourer's bag, it was a big leather bag. And if we went on the firing range, you had to fight all the targets then were brought to me. They found out which who were firing where. So if the if the shots were going low, right or left, you could alter the front sight to compensate. So then you could put, we had a tool to take the front sight off and replace it with different sizes. That was called zeroing. So every, Rifle had to be zeroed to the individual who was going to carry it. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode, which is dedicated to the memory of Ernest Booth, who sadly passed away a few months after this interview was done. It's also dedicated to the memory of his best friend, Jerry Taylor, who was killed during the Santa's Air Raid in 1942. I'll be showing a couple of photos that Ernest kindly showed to me and I'll be posting further information for anyone who wishes to visit the CWGC war graves at St. Nazaire, where Jerry Taylor is buried so that you can pay your respects to him. You'll be able to find this information and these photos on our Twitter, Facebook and YouTube pages at World Nation and also Instagram at World Nation HQ or by visiting our website www2nation.com. And if you wish to help support the World Station podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review. It's greatly appreciated. Looking ahead to the next installment here on the World Station podcast, I'll be joined by my good friend, Battlefield Guide, Ben Main, as we discuss Operation Charmwood and the Allied attempt to finally capture the city of Cannes in Normandy in early July 1944. Anyhow, until next time, this is Lawrence Waller signing off for this episode of the World Station podcast. <laughs>